Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight. I continue the story, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, by Anne Bronte. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 7 Not many days after this, on a mild sunny morning, rather soft underfoot, for the last fall of snow was only just wasted away, leaving yet a thin ridge here and there, lingering on the fresh green grass beneath the hedges. But beside them already, the young primroses were peeping from among their moist, dark foliage, and the lark above was singing of summer and hope and love and every heavenly thing. I was out on the hillside, enjoying these delights and looking after the well-being of my young lambs and their mothers, when on glancing round me, I beheld three persons ascending from the vale below. They were Eliza Millward, Fergus, and Rose. So I crossed the field to meet them, and being told they were going to Wildfell Hall, 
I declared myself willing to go with them, and offering my arm to Eliza, who readily accepted it in lieu of my brothers, told the latter he might go back, for I would accompany the ladies. I beg your pardon, exclaimed he. It's the ladies that are accompanying me, not I them. You had all had a peep at this wonderful stranger but me, and I could endure my wretched ignorance no longer. Come what would, I must be satisfied. So I begged Rose to go with me to the hall and introduce me to her at once. She swore she would not unless Miss Eliza would go too. So I ran to the vicarage and fetched her, and we've come hooked all the way as fond as a pair of lovers. And now you've taken her from me, and you want to deprive me of my walk and my visit besides. Go back to your fields and your cattle, you lubberly fellow. You're not fit to associate with ladies and gentlemen like us that have nothing to do but to run snooking about to their neighbors' houses, peeping into their private corners and sending out their secrets and picking holes in their coats when we don't find them ready-made to our hands. You don't understand such refined sources of enjoyment. Can't you both go, suggested Eliza, disregarding the latter half of the speech. Yes, both, to be sure, cried Rose. The more the merrier. And I'm sure we shall want all the cheerfulness we can carry with us to that great, dark, gloomy room with its narrow latticed windows and its dismal old furniture, unless she shows us into her studio again. So we went all in a body, and the meagre old maidservant that opened the door ushered us into an apartment such as Rose had described to me as the scene of her first introduction to Mrs. Graham, a tolerably spacious and lofty room, but obscurely lighted by the old-fashioned windows, the ceiling, panels, and chimney-piece of grim black oak, the latter elaborately but not very tastefully carved, with tables and chairs to match, an old bookcase on one side of the fireplace, stocked with a motley assemblage of books, and an elderly cabinet piano on the other. The lady was seated in a stiff, high-backed armchair, with a small round table containing a desk and a work basket on one side of her, and her little boy on the other, who stood leaning his elbow on her knee and reading to her with wonderful fluency from a small volume that lay in her lap, while she rested her hand on his shoulder and abstractly played with the long wavy curls that fell on his ivory neck. They struck me as forming a pleasing contrast to all the surrounding objects, but of course their position was immediately changed on our entrance. I could only observe the picture during the few brief seconds that Rachel held the door for our admittance. I do not think Mrs. Graham was particularly delighted to see us. There was something indescribably chilly in her quiet, calm civility, but I did not talk much to her. Seating myself near the window, a little back from the circle, I called Arthur to me, and he and I and Sancho amused ourselves very pleasantly together, while the two young ladies baited his mother with small talk, and Fergus sat opposite, with his legs crossed and his hands in his breeches pockets, leaning back in his chair, and staring now up at the ceiling, now straight forward at his hostess, in a manner that made me strongly inclined to kick him out of the room now whistling sotto voce to himself a snatch of a favourite air, now interrupting the conversation or filling up a pause, as the case might be, with some most impertinent question or remark. At one time it was, 
It amazes me, Mrs. Graham, how you could choose such a dilapidated, rickety old place as this to live in. If you couldn't afford to occupy the whole house and have it mended up, why couldn't you take a neat little cottage? Perhaps I was too proud, Mr. Fergus, replied she, smiling. Perhaps I took a particular fancy for this romantic, old-fashioned place. But indeed, it has many advantages over a cottage. In the first place, you see, the rooms are larger and more airy. In the second place, the unoccupied rooms, which I don't pay for, may serve as lumber rooms, if I have anything to put in them. And they're very useful for my little boy to run about in on rainy days when he can't get out. And then there is the garden for him to play in and for me to work in. You see, I've effected some little improvement already, continued she, turning to the window. There is a bed of young vegetables in that corner, and here are some snowdrops and primroses already in bloom. And there, too, is a yellow crocus just opening in the sunshine. But then, how can you bear such a situation? Your nearest neighbor's two miles distant, and nobody looking in or passing by. Rose would go stark mad in such a place. She can't put on life unless she sees half a dozen fresh gowns and bonnets a day, not to speak of the faces within. And you might sit watching at these windows all day long and never see so much as an old woman carrying her eggs to market. I'm not sure the loneliness of the place was not one of its chief recommendations. I take no pleasure in watching people pass the windows, and I like to be quiet. Oh, as good as to say you wish we would all mind our own business and let you alone. No, I dislike an extensive acquaintance. But if I have a few friends, of course I'm glad to see them occasionally. No one can be happy in eternal solitude. Therefore, Mr. Fergus, if you choose to enter my house as a friend, I will make you welcome. If not, I must confess, I would rather you kept away. She then turned and addressed some observation to Rose or Eliza. And Mrs. Graham, said he again five minutes after. We were disputing, as we came along, a question that you can readily decide for us, as it mainly regarded yourself. And indeed, we often hold discussions about you, for some of us have nothing better to do than to talk about our neighbors' concerns. And we, the indigenous plants of the soil, have known each other so long and talked each other over so often that we are quite sick of that game. So that a stranger coming amongst us makes an invaluable addition to our exhausted sources of amusement. Well, the question, or questions, you are requested to solve. Hold your tongue, Fergus, cried Rose in a fever of apprehension and wrath. I won't, I tell you. The questions you are requested to solve are these. First, concerning your birth, extraction, and previous residence. Some will have it that you are a foreigner and some an Englishwoman, some a native of the North Country, and some of the South. Some say, Well, Mr. Fergus, I'll tell you. I'm an Englishwoman, and I don't see why anyone should doubt it. And I was born in the country, neither in the extreme north nor south of our happy isle. And in the country I have chiefly passed my life. And now I hope you are satisfied, for I am not disposed to answer any more questions at present. Except this. No, not one more, laughed she. And instantly quitting her seat, she sought refuge at the window by which I was seated. And in very desperation to escape my brother's persecutions, endeavored to draw me into conversation. 
Mr. Markham, said she, with rapid utterance and heightened colour, too plainly evincing her disquietude. Have you forgotten the fine sea view we were speaking of some time ago? I think I must trouble you now to tell me the nearest way to it. For if this beautiful weather continue, I shall perhaps be able to walk there and take my sketch. I've exhausted every other subject for painting, and I long to see it. I was about to comply with her request, but Rose would not suffer me to proceed. Oh, don't tell her, Gilbert, cried she. She shall go with us. It's blank bay you are thinking about, I suppose, Mrs. Graham. It's a very long walk, too far for you, and out of the question for Arthur. But we were thinking about making a picnic to see it some fine day. And if you will wait till the settled fine weather comes, I'm sure we shall all be delighted to have you amongst us. Poor Mrs. Graham looked dismayed and attempted to make excuses. But Rose, either compassionating her lonely life or anxious to cultivate her acquaintance, was determined to have her, and every objection was overruled. She was told it would be only a small party and all friends, and that the best view of all was from Blank Cliffs, full five miles distant. Just a nice walk for the gentlemen, continued Rose, and the ladies will drive and walk by turns, for we shall have our pony carriage, which will be plenty large enough to contain little Arthur and three ladies, together with your sketching apparatus and other provisions. So the proposal was finally acceded to, and after some further discussion respecting the time and manner of the projected excursion, we rose and took our leave. But this was only March. A cold, wet April and two weeks of May passed over before we could venture forth on our expedition with a reasonable hope of obtaining that pleasure we sought in pleasant prospects, cheerful society, fresh air, good chair and exercise, without the alloy of bad roads, cold winds, or threatening clouds. Then, on a glorious morning, we gathered our forces and set forth. The company consisted of Mrs. and Master Graham, Mary and Eliza Millward, Jane and Richard Wilson, and Rose, Fergus, and Gilbert Markham. Mr. Lawrence had been invited to join us, but for some reason, best known to himself, had refused to give us his company. I had solicited the favor myself. When I did so, he hesitated and asked who were going. Upon my naming Miss Wilson among the rest, he seemed half inclined to go. But when I mentioned Mrs. Graham, thinking there might be further inducement, it appeared to have a contrary effect, and he declined it altogether. And to confess the truth, the decision was not displeasing to me, though I could scarcely tell you why. It was about midday when we reached the place of our destination. Mrs. Graham walked all the way to the cliffs, and little Arthur walked the greater part of it too, for he was now much more hardy and active than when he first entered the neighborhood, and he did not like being in the carriage with strangers, while all his four friends, Mama and Sancho, and Mr. Markham and Miss Millward, were on foot, journeying far behind, or passing through distant fields and lanes. I have a very pleasant recollection of that walk, along the hard, white, sunny road, shaded here and there with bright green trees and adorned with flowery banks and blossoming hedges of delicious fragrance, or through pleasant fields and lanes, all glorious in the sweet flowers and brilliant verdure of delightful May. It was true, Eliza was not beside me, but she was with her friends in the pony carriage as happy, I trusted, as I was, 
And even when we pedestrians, having forsaken the highway for a short cut across the fields, beheld the little carriage far away, disappearing amid the green embowering trees, I did not hate those trees for snatching the dear little bonnet and shawl from my sight, nor did I feel that all those intervening objects lay between my happiness and me. For, to confess the truth, I was too happy in the company of Mrs. Graham to regret the absence of Eliza Millward. The former, it is true, was most provokingly unsociable at first, seemingly bent upon talking to no one but Mary Millward and Arthur. She and Mary journeyed along together, generally with a child between them, but where the road permitted, I always walked on the other side of her, Richard Wilson taking the other side of Miss Millward, and Fergus roving here and there according to his fancy. And after a while, she became more friendly, and at length I succeeded in securing her attention almost entirely to myself. And then I was happy indeed, for whenever she did condescend to converse, I liked to listen. Where her opinions and sentiments tallied with mine, it was her extreme good sense, her exquisite taste and feeling that delighted me. Where they differed, it was still her uncompromising boldness and the avowal or defense of that difference, her earnestness and keenness that piqued my fancy. And even when she angered me by her unkind words or looks and her uncharitable conclusions respecting me, it only made me the more dissatisfied with myself for having so unfavorably impressed her and the more desirous to vindicate my character and disposition in her eyes, and if possible, to win her esteem. At length, our walk was ended. The increasing height and boldness of the hills had for some time intercepted the prospect, and on gaining the summit of a steep acclivity and looking downward, an opening lay before us, and the blue sea burst upon our sight, deep violet blue, not deadly calm, but covered with glinting breakers, diminutive white specks twinkling on its bosom, and scarcely to be distinguished by the keenest vision from the little sea mews that sported above, their white wings glittering in the sunshine. Only one or two vessels were visible, and those were far away. I looked at my companion to see what she thought of this glorious scene. She said nothing, but she stood still and fixed her eyes upon it with a gaze that assured me she was not disappointed. She had very fine eyes, by the by. I don't know whether I've told you before. But they were full of soul, large, clear, and nearly black, not brown, but very dark gray. A cool, reviving breeze blew from the sea, soft, pure, salubrious. It waved her drooping ringlets and imparted a livelier color to her usually too pallid lip and cheek. She felt its exhilarating influence, and so did I. I felt it tingling through my frame but dared not give way to it while she remained so quiet. There was an aspect of subdued exhilaration in her face that kindled into almost a smile of exalted, glad intelligence as her eye met mine. Never had she looked so lovely. Never had my heart so warmly cleaved to her as now. Had we been left two minutes longer standing there alone? I cannot answer for the consequences. Happily for my discretion, perhaps for my enjoyment during the remainder of the day, we were speedily summoned to the repast, a very respectable collation which rose, assisted by Miss Wilson and Eliza, who, having shared her seat in the carriage, had arrived with her a little before the rest, had set out upon an elevated platform overlooking the sea, 
and sheltered from the hot sun by a shelving rock and overhanging trees. Mrs. Graham seated herself at a distance from me. Eliza was my nearest neighbour. She exerted herself to be agreeable in her gentle, unobtrusive way, and was, no doubt, as fascinating and charming as ever, if I could only have felt it. But soon my heart began to warm towards her once again, and we were all very merry and happy together, as far as I could see, throughout the protracted social meal. When that was over, Rose summoned Fergus to help her to gather up the fragments and the knives, dishes, etc., and restore them to the baskets. And Mrs. Graham took her cap, stool, and drawing materials, and having begged Miss Millward to take charge of her precious son, and strictly enjoined him not to wander from his new guardian's side, she left us and proceeded along the steep, stony hill to a loftier, more precipitous eminence at some distance, whence a still finer prospect was to be had, where she preferred taking her sketch, though some of the ladies told her it was a frightful place and advised her not to attempt it. When she was gone, I felt as if there was to be no more fun, though it is difficult to say what she had contributed to the hilarity of the party. No jests and little laughter had escaped her lips, but her smile had animated my mirth. A keen observation or a cheerful word from her had insensibly sharpened my wits and thrown an interest over all that was done and said by the rest. Even my conversation with Eliza had been enlivened by her presence, though I knew it not. And now that she was gone, Eliza's playful nonsense ceased to amuse me, nay, grew wearisome to my soul, and I grew weary of amusing her. I felt myself drawn by an irresistible attraction to that distant point where the fair artist sat and plied her solitary task. And not long did I attempt to resist it. While my little neighbor was exchanging a few words with Miss Wilson, I rose and cannily slipped away. A few rapid strides and a little active clamoring soon brought me to the place where she was seated, a narrow ledge of rock at the very verge of the hill, which descended with a sharp precipitous slant quite down to the rocky shore. She did not hear me coming. The falling of my shadow across her paper gave her an electric start, and she looked round hastily. Any other woman of my acquaintance would have screamed under such a sudden alarm. Oh, I didn't know it was you. Why did you startle me so, said she, somewhat testily. I hate anybody to come upon me so unexpectedly. Why, what did you take me for, said I. If I had known you were so nervous, I would have been more cautious, but... Well, never mind. What did you come for? Are they all coming? No, this little ledge could scarcely contain them all. I'm glad for I'm tired of talking. Well then, I won't talk. I'll only sit and watch your drawing. Oh, but you know I don't like that. Then I'll content myself with admiring this magnificent prospect. She made no objection to this, and for some time sketched away in silence. But I cannot help stealing a glance now and then, from the splendid view at our feet, to the elegant hand that held the pencil, and the graceful neck and glossy raven curls that drooped over the paper. Now, thought I, if I had but a pencil and a morsel of paper, I could make a lovelier sketch than hers, admitting I had the power to delineate faithfully what is before me. But though the satisfaction was denied me, 
I was very well content to sit beside her there and say nothing. Are you still there, Mr. Markham? said she at length, looking round upon me, for I was seated a little behind on a mossy projection of the cliff. Why don't you go and amuse yourself with your friends? Because I am tired of them, like you, and I shall have enough of them tomorrow, or at any time hence. But you, I may not have the pleasure of seeing again, for I know not how long. What was Arthur doing when you came away? He was with Miss Millward, where you left him. All right. But hoping Mamma would not be long away. You didn't entrust him to me, by the by, I grumbled, though I had the honor of a much longer acquaintance. But Miss Millward has the art of conciliating and amusing children, I carelessly added, if she is good for nothing else. Miss Millward has many estimable qualities which, such as you, cannot be expected to perceive or appreciate. Will you tell Arthur that I shall come in a few minutes? If that be the case, I will wait, with your permission, till those few minutes are past. And then I can assist you to descend this difficult path. Thank you. I always manage best on such occasions, without assistance. But at least I can carry your stool and sketchbook. She did not deny me this favor, but I was rather offended at her evident desire to be rid of me, and was beginning to repent of my pertinacity, when she somewhat appeased me by consulting my taste and judgment about some doubtful matter in her drawing. My opinion happily met her approbation, and the improvement I suggested was adopted without hesitation. I have often wished in vain, said she, for another's judgment to appeal to, when I could scarcely trust the direction of my own eye and head, they having been so long occupied with the contemplation of a single object as to become almost incapable of forming a proper idea respecting it. That, replied I, is only one of the many evils to which a solitary life exposes us. True, she said and again we relapsed into silence. About two minutes after, however, she declared her sketch completed and closed the book. On returning to the scene of our repast, we found all the company had deserted it, with the exception of three, Mary Millward, Richard Wilson, and Arthur Graham. The younger gentleman lay fast asleep with his head pillowed on the lady's lap. The other was seated beside her with a pocket edition of some classic author in his hand. He never went anywhere without such a companion wherewith to improve his leisure moments. All time seemed lost that was not devoted to study or exacted by his physical nature for the bare support of life. Even now he could not abandon himself to the enjoyment of that pure air and balmy sunshine, that splendid prospect and those soothing sounds, the music of the waves and of the soft wind in the sheltering trees above him. Not even with a lady by his side, though not a very charming one, I will allow. He must pull out his book and make the most of his time while digesting his temperate meal and reposing his weary limbs, unused to so much exercise. Perhaps, however, he spared a moment to exchange a word or a glance with his companion now and then. At any rate, she did not appear at all resentful of his conduct, for her homely features wore an expression of unusual cheerfulness and serenity and she was studying his pale, thoughtful face with great complacency when we arrived. The journey homeward was by no means so agreeable to me as the former part of the day, for now Mrs. Graham was in the carriage, and Eliza Millward was the companion of my walk. 
she had observed my preference for the young widow and evidently felt herself neglected. She did not manifest her chagrin by keen reproaches, bitter sarcasms, or pouting, sullen silence. Any or all of these I could easily have endured or lightly laughed away. But she showed it by a kind of gentle melancholy, a mild reproachful sadness that cut me to the heart. I tried to cheer her up and apparently succeeded in some degree before the walk was over. But in the very act my conscience reproved me, knowing as I did that sooner or later the tie must be broken. And this was only nourishing false hopes and putting off the evil day. When the pony carriage had approached to snare Wildfell Hall as the road would permit, unless indeed it proceeded up the long, rough lane which Mrs. Graham would not allow, the young widow and her son alighted, relinquishing the driver's seat to Rose, and I persuaded Eliza to take the latter's place. Having put her comfortably in, bid her take care of the evening air, and wished her a kind good night, I felt considerably relieved and hastened to offer my services to Mrs. Graham to carry her apparatus up the fields. But she had already hung her camp stool on her arm and taken her sketchbook in her hand, and insisted upon bidding me adieu, then and there, with the rest of the company. But this time, she declined my proffered aid in so kind and friendly a manner that I almost forgave her. Chapter 8 Six weeks passed away. It was a splendid morning about the close of June. Most of the hay was cut, but the last week had been very unfavorable. And now that the fine weather was come at last, being determined to make the most of it, I had gathered all hands together into the hayfield and was working away myself in the midst of them, in my shirt sleeves with a light, shady straw hat on my head, catching up armfuls of moist, reeking grass and shaking it out to the four winds of heaven at the head of a goodly file of servants and hirelings, intending so to labor from morning till night with as much zeal and assiduity as I could look for from any of them, as well to prosper the work by my own exertion as to animate the workers by my example. When lo, my resolutions were overthrown in a moment by the simple fact of my brothers running up to me and putting into my hand a small parcel just arrived from London, which I had been for some time expecting. I tore off the cover and disclosed an elegant and portable edition of Marmion. I guess I know who that's for, said Fergus, who stood looking on while I complacently examined the volume. That's for Miss Eliza now. He pronounced this with a tone and look so prodigiously knowing that I was glad to contradict him. You're wrong, my lad, said I and taking up my coat, I deposited the book in one of its pockets, and then put it on, that is, the coat. Now come here, you idle dog, and make yourself useful for once, I continued. Pull off your coat, and take my place in the field till I come back. Till you come back? And where are you going, pray? No matter where, the when is all that concerns you, and I shall be back by dinner, at least. Oh. Oh and I'm to labor away till then, am I? And keep all these fellows hard at it besides? Well, well, I'll submit, for once in a way. Come, my lads, you must look sharp. I've come to help you now, and woe be to that man or woman either that pauses for a moment amongst you, whether to stare about him, to scratch his head or blow his nose, 
No pretext will serve. Nothing but work, 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 and the sweat of your face. Leaving him thus haranguing the people, more to their amusement than edification, I returned to the house, and having made some alteration in my toilet, hastened away to Wildfell Hall with a book in my pocket, for it was destined for the shelves of Mrs. Graham. What? Then had she and you got on so well together as to come to the giving and receiving of presents? Not precisely, O Buck. This was my first experiment in that line, and I was very anxious to see the result of it. We had met several times since the Blank Bay excursion, and I had found she was not averse to my company, provided I confined my conversation to the discussion of abstract matters or topics of common interest. The moment I touched upon the sentimental or the complimentary, or made the slightest approach to tenderness in word or look, I was not only punished by an immediate change in her manner at the time, but doomed to find her more cold and distant, if not entirely inaccessible, when I next sought her company. This circumstance did not greatly disconcert me, however, because I attributed it, not so much to any dislike of my person, as to some absolute resolution against a second marriage formed prior to the time of our acquaintance, whether from access of affection for her late husband, or because she had had enough of him and the matrimonial state together. At first, indeed, she had seemed to take pleasure in mortifying my vanity and crushing my presumption, relentlessly nipping off bud by bud as they ventured to appear. And then I confess I was deeply wounded, though at the same time stimulated to seek revenge. But latterly finding, beyond a doubt, that I was not that empty-headed coxcomb she had first supposed me, she had repulsed my modest advances and quite a different spirit. It was a kind of serious, almost sorrowful displeasure, which I soon learnt carefully to avoid awakening. Let me first establish myself as a friend, thought I, the patron and playfellow of her son, the sober, solid, plain-dealing friend of herself, and then, when I've made myself fairly necessary to her comfort and enjoyment in life, as I believe I can, we'll see what next may be effected. So we talked about painting, poetry and music, theology, geology and philosophy. Once or twice I lent her a book, and once she lent me one in return. I met her in her walks as often as I could. I came to her house as often as I dared. My first pretext for invading the sanctum was to bring Arthur a little waddling puppy of which Sancho was the father, and which delighted the child beyond expression, and consequently could not fail to please his mamma. My second was to bring him a book, which, knowing his mother's particularity, I had carefully selected, and which I submitted for her approbation before presenting it to him. Then I brought her some plants for her garden in my sister's name, having previously persuaded Rose to send them. Each of these times I inquired after the picture she was painting from the sketch taken on the cliff, and was admitted into the studio and asked my opinion or advice respecting its progress. My last visit had been to return the book she had lent me, and then it was that, in casually discussing the poetry of Sir Walter Scott, she had expressed a wish to see Marmion, and I had conceived the presumptuous idea of making her a present of it, and on my return home instantly sent for the smart little volume I had this morning received. But an apology for invading the hermitage was still necessary, so I had furnished myself with a blue Morocco collar for Arthur's little dog, 
and that being given and received with much more joy and gratitude on the part of the receiver than the worth of the gift or the selfish motive that the giver deserved. I ventured to ask Mrs. Graham for one more look at the picture, if it was still there. Oh yes, come in, said she, where I had met them in the garden. It is finished and framed, all ready for sending away. But give me your last opinion, and if you can suggest any further improvement, it shall be duly considered at least. The picture was strikingly beautiful. It was the very scene itself, transferred as by magic to the canvas. But I expressed my approbation in guarded terms and few words for fear of displeasing her. She, however, attentively watched my looks, and her artist's pride was gratified, no doubt, to read my heartfelt admiration in my eyes. But while I gazed, I thought upon the book and wondered how it was to be presented. My heart failed me, but I determined not to be such a fool as to come away without having made the attempt. It was useless waiting for an opportunity, and useless trying to concoct a speech for the occasion. The more plainly and naturally the thing was done, the better, I thought. So I just looked out of the window to screw up my courage, and then pulled out the book, turned round, and put it into her hand with this short explanation. You were wishing to see Marmion, Mrs. Graham, and here it is, if you will be so kind as to take it. A momentary blush suffused her face, perhaps a blush of sympathetic shame for such an awkward style of presentation. She gravely examined the volume on both sides, then silently turned over the leaves, knitting her brows the while in serious cogitation, then closed the book and, turning from it to me, quietly asked the price of it. I felt the hot blood rush to my face. I'm sorry to offend you, Mr. Markham, said she, but unless I pay for the book, I cannot take it. And she laid it on the table. Why cannot you? Because, she paused and looked at the carpet. Why cannot you, I repeated, with a degree of irascibility that roused her to lift her eyes and look me steadily in the face. Because I don't like to put myself under obligations that I can never repay. I'm obliged to you already for your kindness to my son, but his grateful affection and your own good feelings must reward you for that. Nonsense, ejaculated I. She turned her eyes on me again with a look of quiet, grave surprise that had the effect of a rebuke, whether intended for such or not. Then you won't take the book, I asked, more mildly than I had yet spoken. I will gladly take it, if you will let me pay for it. I told her the exact price and the cost of the carriage besides, in as calm a tone as I could command, for in fact I was ready to weep with disappointment and vexation. She produced her purse and coolly counted out the money, but hesitated to put it in my hand. Attentively regarding me, in a tone of soothing softness she observed, you think yourself insulted, Mr. Markham. I wish I could make you understand that, that I, I do understand you perfectly, I said. You think that if you were to accept that trifle from me now, I should presume upon it hereafter, and you are mistaken. If you will only oblige me by taking it, believe me, I shall build no hopes upon it, and consider this no precedent for future favours. And it is nonsense to talk about putting yourself under obligations to me, when you must know that in such a case the obligation is entirely on my side, the favour on yours. Well then, I'll take you at your word, she answered, with a most angelic smile, returning the odious money to her purse. But remember, 
I will remember what I have said. But do not you punish my presumption by withdrawing your friendship entirely from me, or expect me to atone for it by being more distant than before, said I, extending my hand to take leave, for I was too much excited to remain. Well then, let us be as we were, replied she, frankly placing her hand in mine. And while I held it there, I had much difficulty to refrain from pressing it to my lips. But that would be suicidal madness. I had been bold enough already. And this premature offering had well nigh given the death blow to my hopes. It was with an agitated, burning heart and brain that I hurried homewards, regardless of that scorching noonday sun. Forgetful of everything but her I had just left. Regretting nothing but her impenetrability and my own precipitancy and want of tact. Faring nothing but her hateful resolution and my, and my inability to overcome it. Hoping nothing but halt. I will not bore you with my conflicting hopes and fears, my serious cogitations and resolves. Chapter 9 Though my affections might now be said to be fairly weaned from Eliza Millward, I did not yet entirely relinquish my visits to the vicarage because I wanted, as it were, to let her down easy, without raising much sorrow or, or incurring much resentment, or making myself the talk of the parish. And besides, if I had wholly kept away, the vicar, who looked upon my visits as paid chiefly, if not entirely to himself, would have felt himself decidedly affronted by the neglect. But when I called there the day after my interview with Mrs. Graham, he happened to be from home, a circumstance by no means so agreeable to me now as it had been on former occasions. Miss Millward was there, it is true, but she, of course, would be little better than a nonentity. However, I resolved to make my visit a short one and to talk to Eliza in a brotherly, friendly sort of way, such as our long acquaintance might warrant me in assuming, and which, I thought, could neither give offence nor serve to encourage false hopes. It was never my custom to talk about Mrs. Graham, either to her or anyone else, but I had not been seated three minutes before she brought that lady onto the carpet herself in a rather remarkable manner. Oh, Mr. Markham, said she, with a shocked expression and voice subdued almost to a whisper, what do you think of these shocking reports about Mrs. Graham? Can you encourage us to disbelieve them? What reports? Ah, now, you know. She slyly smiled and shook her head. I know nothing about them. What in the world do you mean, Eliza? Oh, don't ask me. I can't explain it. She took up the cambric handkerchief, which she had been beautifying with a deep lace border, and began to be very busy. What is it, Miss Millward? What does she mean? said I, appealing to her sister, who seemed to be absorbed in the hemming of a large, coarse sheet. I don't know, replied she. Some idle slander somebody has been inventing, I suppose. I never heard it till Eliza told me the other day. But if all the parish dinned it in my ears, I shouldn't believe a word of it. I know Mrs. Graham too well. Quite right, Miss Millward, and so do I, whatever it may be. Well, observed Eliza with a gentle sigh, it's well to have such a comfortable assurance regarding the worth of those we love. I only wish you may not find your confidence misplaced and she raised her face and gave me such a look of sorrowful tenderness as might have melted my heart. But within those eyes there lurked a something that I did not like. 
and I wondered how I ever could have admired them. Her sister's honest face and small grey optics appeared far more agreeable. But I was out of temper with Eliza at that moment for her insinuations against Mrs. Graham, which were false, I was certain, whether she knew it or not. I said nothing more on the subject, however, at the time, and but little on any other, for finding I could not well recover my equanimity, I presently rose and took leave, excusing myself under the plea of business at the farm. And to the farm I went, not troubling my mind one whit about the possible truth of these mysterious reports, but only wondering what they were, by whom originated, and on what foundations raised, and how they could the most effectually be silenced or disproved. A few days after this we had another of our quiet little parties, to which the usual company of friends and neighbours had been invited, and Mrs. Graham among the number. She could not now absent herself under the plea of dark evenings or inclement weather, and greatly to my relief, she came. Without her I should have found the whole affair an intolerable bore, but the moment of her arrival brought new life to the house, and though I might not neglect the other guests for her, or expect to engross much of her attention and conversation to myself alone, I anticipated an evening of no common enjoyment. Mr. Lawrence came too. He did not arrive till some time after the rest were assembled. I was curious to see how he would comport himself to Mrs. Graham. A slight bow was all that passed between them on his entrance. And having politely greeted the other members of the company, he seated himself quite aloof from the young widow, between my mother and Rose. Did you ever see such art? whispered Eliza, who was my nearest neighbour. Would you not say they were perfect strangers? Almost. What then? What then? Why, you can't pretend to be ignorant. Ignorant of what? demanded I, so sharply that she started, and replied, Oh, hush, don't speak so loud. Well, tell me then, I answered in a lower tone, what is it you mean? I hate enigmas. Well, you know, I don't vouch for the truth of it, indeed, far from it. But haven't you heard? I've heard nothing, except from you. You must be willfully deaf, then, for anyone will tell you that. But I shall only anger you by repeating it, I see, so I had better hold my tongue. She closed her lips and folded her hands before her, with an air of injured meekness. If you'd wish not to anger me, you should have held your tongue from the beginning, or else spoken out plainly and honestly all you had to say. She turned aside her face, pulled out her handkerchief, rose, and went to the window, where she stood for some time evidently dissolved in tears. I was astounded, provoked, ashamed, not so much as my harshness as for her childish weakness. However, no one seemed to notice her, and shortly after we were summoned to the tea-table. In those parts it was customary to sit to the table at tea-time on all occasions, and make a meal of it, for we dined early. On taking my seat I had rose on one side of me, and an empty chair on the other. May I sit by you, said a voice at my elbow. If you like, was the reply, and Eliza slipped into the vacant chair, and looking up into my face with a half-sad, half-playful smile, she whispered, You're so stern, Gilbert. I handed down her tea with a slightly contemptuous smile and said nothing, for I had nothing to say. What have I done to offend you, said she, more plaintively. I wish I knew. Come, take your tea, Eliza, and don't be foolish, responded I, 
handing her the sugar and cream. Just then, there arose a slight commotion on the other side of me, occasioned by Miss Wilson's coming to negotiate an exchange of seeds with Rose. Will you be so good as to exchange places with me, Miss Markham, said she, for I don't like to sit by Mrs. Graham. If your mamma thinks proper to invite such persons to her house, she cannot object to her daughter's keeping company with them. This latter clause was added in a sort of soliloquy when Rose was gone, but I was not polite enough to let it pass. Will you be so kind as to tell me what you mean, Miss Wilson, said I. The question startled her a little, but not much. Why, Mr. Markham, replied she, coolly, having quickly recovered her self-possession. It surprises me, rather, that Mrs. Markham should invite such a person as Mrs. Graham to her house. But perhaps she is not aware that the lady's character is considered scarcely respectable. She is not. Nor am I. And therefore you would oblige me by explaining your meaning a little further? This is scarcely the time or place for such explanations. But I think you can hardly be so ignorant as you pretend. You must know her as well as I do. I think I do, perhaps a little better. And therefore, if you will inform me what you have heard or imagined against her, I shall, perhaps, be able to set it right. Can you tell me, then, who was her husband? She ever had any? Indignation kept me silent. At such a time and place, I cannot trust myself to answer. Have you never observed, said Eliza, what a striking likeness there is between that child of hers and... And whom? demanded Miss Wilson, with an air of cold but keen severity. Eliza was startled. The timidly spoken suggestion had been intended for my ear alone. Oh, I beg your pardon, pleaded she. I may be mistaken. Perhaps I was mistaken. But she accompanied the words with a sly glance of derision directed to me from the corner of her disingenuous eye. There's no need to ask for my pardon replied her friend. But I see no one here that at all resembles that child, except his mother. And when you hear ill-natured reports, Miss Eliza, I will thank you, that is, I think you will do well to refrain from repeating them. I presume the person you allude to is Mr. Lawrence, but I think I can assure you that your suspicions in that respect are utterly misplaced. And if he has any particular connection with the lady at all, which no one has a right to assert, at least he has, what cannot be said of some others, sufficient sense of propriety to withhold him from acknowledging anything more than a bowing acquaintance in the presence of respectable persons. He was evidently both surprised and annoyed to find her here. Go it, cried Fergus, who sat on the other side of Eliza and was the only individual who shared that side of the table with us. Go it like bricks. Mind you don't leave her one stone upon another. Miss Wilson drew herself up with a look of freezing scorn, but said nothing. Eliza would have replied, but I interrupted her by saying as calmly as I could, though in a tone which betrayed, no doubt, some little of what I felt within. We have had enough of this subject. If we can only speak to slander our betters, let us hold our tongues. I think you'd better, observed Fergus, and so does our good parson. He has been addressing the company in his richest vein all the while and eyeing you from time to time, with looks of stern distaste, while you sit there, irreverently whispering and muttering together. And once he paused in the middle of a story or a sermon, I don't know which, and fixed his eyes upon you, Gilbert, as much as to say, 
When Mr. Markham has done flirting with those two ladies, I shall proceed. What more was said at the tea table, I cannot tell, nor how I found patience to sit till the meal was over. I remember, however, that I swallowed with difficulty the remainder of the tea that was in my cup and ate nothing, and that the first thing I did was to stare at Arthur Graham, who sat beside his mother on the opposite side of the table, and the second to stare at Mr. Lawrence, who sat below. And first it struck me that there was a likeness, but on further contemplation I concluded it was only an imagination. Both, it is true, had more delicate features and smaller bones than commonly fall to the lot of individuals of the rougher sex, and Lawrence's complexion was pale and clear, and Arthur's delicately fair. But Arthur's tiny, somewhat snubby nose could never become so long and straight as Mr. Lawrence's, and the outline of his face, though not full enough to be round, and too finely converging to the small dimpled chin to be square, could never be drawn out to the long oval of the others. While the child's hair was evidently of a lighter, warmer tint than the elder gentleman's had ever been, and his large, clear blue eyes, though prematurely serious at times, were utterly dissimilar to the shy, hazel eyes of Mr. Lawrence, whence the sensitive soul looked so distrustfully forth, as ever ready to retire within from the offences of a too rude, too uncongenial world. Wretch that I was to harbour that detestable idea for a moment. Did I not know Mrs. Graham? Had I not seen her, conversed with her time after time? Was I not certain that she, in intellect, in purity and elevation of soul, was immeasurably superior to any of her detractors? That she was, in fact, the noblest, the most adorable of her sex I'd ever beheld, or even imagined to exist? Yes. And I would say with Mary Millward, sensible girl as she was, if all the parish, nay, or all the world should din these horrible lies in my ears, I would not believe them, for I knew her better than they. Meantime, my brain was on fire with indignation, and my heart seemed ready to burst from its prison with conflicting passions. I regarded my two fair neighbors with a feeling of abhorrence and loathing I scarcely endeavored to conceal. I was rallied from several quarters for my abstraction and an ungallant neglect of the ladies, but I cared little for that. All I cared about, besides that one grand subject of my thoughts, was to see the cups travel up to the tea tray and not come down again. I thought Mr. Millward never would cease telling us that he was no tea drinker, and that it was highly injurious to keep loading the stomach with slops to the exclusion of more wholesome sustenance, and so give himself time to finish his fourth cup. At length, it was over, and I rose and left the table and the guests without a word of apology. I could endure their company no longer. I rushed out to cool my brain in the balmy evening air that didn't compose my mind or indulge my passionate thoughts in the solitude of the garden. To avoid being seen from the windows, I went down a little quiet avenue that skirted one side of the enclosure, at the bottom of which was a seat embowered in roses and honeysuckles. Here I sat down to think over the virtues and wrongs of the Lady of Wildfell Hall, but I had not been so occupied two minutes before voices and laughter and glimpses of moving objects through the trees informed me that the whole company had turned out to take an airing in the garden too. However, I nestled up in a corner of the bower 
and hope to retain possession of it, secure alike from observation and intrusion. But no, confound it, there was someone coming down the avenue. Why couldn't they enjoy the flowers and sunshine of the open garden and leave that sunless nook to me and the gnats and midges? But peeping through my fragrant screen of the interwoven branches to discover who the intruders were, for a murmur of voices told me it was more than one, my vexation instantly subsided, and far other feelings agitated my still unquiet soul. For there was Mrs. Graham slowly walking down the walk, with Arthur by her side and no one else. Why were they alone? Had the poison of detracting tongues already spread through all, and had they all turned their backs upon her? I now recollected having seen Mrs. Wilson in the early part of the evening, edging her chair close up to my mother and bending forward, evidently in the delivery of some important confidential intelligence. And from the incessant wagging of her head, the frequent distortions of her wrinkled physiognomy, and the winking and malicious twinkle of her little ugly eyes, I judged it was some spicy piece of scandal that engaged her powers. And from the cautious privacy of the communication, I suppose some person then present was the luckless object of her calumnies. And from all these tokens, together with my mother's looks and gestures of mingled horror and incredulity, I now concluded that object to have been Mrs. Graham. I did not emerge from my place of concealment till she had nearly reached the bottom of the walk, lest my appearance should drive her away. And when I did step forward, she stood still and seemed inclined to turn back as it was. Oh, don't let us disturb you, Mr. Markham, said she. We came here to seek retirement ourselves, not to intrude upon your seclusion. I am no hermit, Mrs. Graham, though I own it looks rather like it to absent myself in this uncourteous fashion from my guests. I feared you were unwell, said she, with a look of real concern. I was, rather, but it's over now. Do sit here a little and rest and tell me how you like this arbor, said I. And lifting Arthur by the shoulders, I planted him in the middle of the seat by way of securing his mamma, who, acknowledging it to be a tempting place of refuge, threw herself back in one corner while I took possession of the other. But that word refuge disturbed me. Had their unkindness then really driven her to seek for peace in solitude? Why have they left you alone? I asked. It is I who have left them, was the smiling rejoinder. I was wearied to death with small talk. Nothing wears me out like that. I cannot imagine how they go on as they do. I could not help smiling at the serious depth of her wonderment. Is it that they think it a duty to be continually talking, pursued she, and so never pause to think, but fill up with aimless trifles and vain repetitions, when subjects of real interest fail to present themselves? Or do they really take a pleasure in such discourse? Very likely they do, said I. Their shallow minds can hold no great ideas, and their light heads are carried away by trivialities that would not move a better furnished skull. And their only alternative to such discourse is to plunge over head and ears into the sloth of scandal, which is their chief delight. Not all of them, surely, cried the lady, astonished at the bitterness of my remark. No, certainly. I exonerate my sister from such degraded tastes, and my mother too, if you included her in your animaversions. I meant no animaversions against one, and certainly intended no disrespectful allusions to your mother. 
I have known some sensible persons, great adepts in that style of conversation, when circumstances impel them to it. But it is a gift I cannot boast the possession of. I kept up my attention on this occasion as long as I could, but when my powers were exhausted, I stole away to seek a few minutes' repose in this quiet walk. I hate talking where there is no exchange of ideas or sentiments, and no good given or received. Well, said I, if I ever trouble you with my loquacity, tell me so at once, and I promise not to be offended, for I possess the faculty of enjoying the company of those, uh, of my friends, as well in silence as in conversation. I don't quite believe you, but if it were so, you would exactly suit me for a companion. Am I all you wish then, in other respects? No, I don't mean that. How beautiful those little clusters of foliage look, where the sun comes through behind them, said she, on purpose to change the subject. And they did look beautiful, where at intervals the level rays of the sun, penetrating the thickness of trees and shrubs on the opposite side of the path before us, relieved their dusky verdure by displaying patches of semi-transparent leaves of resplendent golden green. I almost wish I were not a painter, observed my companion. Why so? One would think at such a time you would most exult in your privilege of being able to imitate the various brilliant and delightful touches of nature. No, for instead of delivering myself up to the full enjoyment of them as others do, I'm always troubling my head about how I could produce the same effect upon canvas. And as that can never be done, it is more vanity and vexation of spirit. Perhaps you cannot do it to satisfy yourself, but you may, and do succeed, in delighting others with the result of your endeavours. Well, after all, I should not complain. Perhaps few people gain their livelihood with so much pleasure in their toil as I do. Here is someone coming. She seemed vexed at the interruption. It is only Mr. Lawrence and Miss Wilson, said I, coming to enjoy a quiet stroll. They will not disturb us. I could not quite decipher the expression of her face, but I was satisfied there was no jealousy therein. What business had I to look for it? What sort of person is Miss Wilson, she asked. She is elegant and accomplished above the generality of her birth and station, and some say she is ladylike and agreeable. I thought her somewhat frigid and rather supercilious in her manner today. Very likely she might be so to you. She has probably taken a prejudice against you, for I think she regards you in the light of a rival. Me? Impossible, Mr. Markham, said she, evidently astonished and annoyed. Well, I know nothing about it, returned I, rather doggedly, for I thought her annoyance was chiefly against myself. The pair had now approached within a few paces of us. Our arbor was set snugly back in a corner, before which the avenue at its termination turned off into the more airy walk along the bottom of the garden. As they approached this, I saw, by the aspect of Jane Wilson, that she was directing her companion's attention to us, and, as well by her cold, sarcastic smile as by the few isolated words of her discourse that reached me, I knew full well that she was impressing him with the idea that we were strongly attached to each other. I noticed that he coloured up to the temples, gave us one furtive glance in passing, and walked on looking grave, but seemingly offering no reply to her remarks. 
It was true, then, that he had some designs upon Mrs. Graham, and were they honourable, he would not be so anxious to conceal them. She was blameless, of course, but he was detestable beyond all count. While these thoughts flashed through my mind, my companion abruptly rose and, calling her son, said they would now go in quest of the company, and departed up the avenue. Doubtless she had heard or guessed something of Miss Wilson's remarks, and therefore it was natural enough she should choose to continue the tete-a-tete no longer, especially as that that moment my cheeks were burning with indignation against my former friend, the token of which she might mistake for a blush of stupid embarrassment. For this I owed Miss Wilson yet another grudge, and still the more I thought upon her conduct, the more I hated her. It was late in the evening before I joined the company. I found Mrs. Graham already equipped for departure, and taking leave of the rest, who were now returned to the house. I offered, nay, begged to accompany her home. Mr. Lawrence was standing by at the time conversing with someone else. He did not look at us, but on hearing my earnest request, he paused in the middle of a sentence to listen for her reply, and went on, with a look of quiet satisfaction, the moment he found it was to be a denial. A denial it was decided, though not unkind. She could not be persuaded to think there was danger for herself or her child, and traversing those lonely lanes and fields without attendance. It was daylight still, and she should meet no one, or she did. The people were quiet and harmless, she was well assured. In fact, she would not hear of anyone's putting himself out of the way to accompany her, though Fergus vouchsafed to offer his services in case they should be more acceptable than mine, and my mother begged she might send one of the farming men to escort her. When she was gone, the rest was all a blank or worse. Lawrence attempted to draw me into conversation, but I snubbed him and went to another part of the room. Shortly after the party broke up, and he himself took leave. When he came up to me, I was blind to his extended hand and deaf to his good night, till he repeated it a second time, and then, to get rid of him, I muttered an inarticulate reply, accompanied by a sulky nod. What is the matter, Markham? whispered he. I replied by a wrathful and contemptuous stare. Are you angry because Mrs. Graham will not let you go home with her? he asked with a faint smile that nearly exasperated me beyond control. But, swallowing down all fiercer answers, I merely demanded, What business is it of yours? Why none, replied he with provoking quietness. Only. And he raised his eyes to my face and spoke with unusual solemnity. Only let me tell you, Markham, that if you have any designs in that quarter, they will certainly fail and it grieves me to see you cherishing false hopes and wasting your strength in useless efforts, for... Hypocrite! I exclaimed, and he held his breath, and looked very blank, turned white about the gills, and went away without another word. I had wounded him to the quick, and I was glad of it. Good night.